Welcome to Future Fossils Podcast. My name is Michael Garfield. And I am Evan Snyder, and we have two very special guests tonight. Uh, we are very stoked to have Mr. Uh, Anthony and Mr. David, and we will divulge more information about uh, both these individuals as the podcast moves forward, but they are both exceptional, wizardry-oriented people. So we're in good company tonight. Uh, we're looking forward to talking to them about their most recent projects. And uh, Anthony, I knew you just were in the process of uh, rolling out your new uh, Earthcry release, and uh, I just listened to that uh, today for the first time all the way through. Really enjoyed it, man. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's, not, like, as, it's not as immediate as it might seem. Like some of, most of that stuff is pretty old, actually. I almost finished it before the first album came out. Some of the more strange, wiggly kind of stuff is more recent. I had a pretty large body of music that I made but I didn't feel as if it was like really, I kind of had one of those like uh, mid like side project career crises where I was like, am I even, what is the point of this? Is, is There's so much music in this persuasion of music that I'm creating that like, is this even worth releasing? Um, I had all these songs kind of sitting around. I kind of got a burst of uh, inspiration when I started messing with the, the, the modular synthesis kind of thing that's happening now and uh, has been happening for a while, but it made me want to go back to those other, other songs and sync the thing up and like mangle the audio and like do new things with it. And I started to create sounds I hadn't heard before, and that's kind of like my favorite thing. Like, when it's the most inspirational thing is when you are creating something you haven't heard before. And uh, I felt like I was able to take those songs and kind of resurrect them with new sounds. And then I felt like good enough about, oh, okay, cool. Like, this is, this is worthy. This is worthwhile uh, to put a, a lot more time into. And then I sink a lot more time into it. And then, um, so you're hearing on the album uh, uh, kind of the four years worth of different songs. Um, I don't know about you guys, but uh, when you create stuff, do you have like blah one through 776? Like, or just like you take your keyboard and just like hit a bunch of keys real fast and push enter because you just don't know what to call anything anymore. Because that's kind of what happens to me. <laughs> and I just do it. And I just kind of went back through a lot of those. And I'm, I've decided now I'm going to have a better way of keeping track of everything. But uh, I just kind of resurrected my favorite ones of blah, like 620 or something. And then those ended up becoming like what they are. Nice. Well, uh, I, I personally like have a, a running Evernote of all the different things that I want to call a track at some point, potentially. So, however, like the, the alternative route is kind of the Autucker script of basically just mashing your keyboard and naming that as your project or your track or iteration or whatever it might be. And it's kind of ironic because they actually named a couple pieces of my gear and they named them uh, Orinoco and uh, the Splund, respectively, which seems rather premeditated. So I don't know exactly what they meant by that. The Splund is a memory man with Hazari from Electric Harmonics. So I guess they, they approach it from multiple angles as well, depending on their inspiration. <laughs> I was going to say that I, I go back and forth between the two extremes of knowing exactly what the song name is and writing to that song and then finishing a song and having such a painstakingly hard time figuring out what that song is called. So I, I've had the range of experience with the song naming there. I want to use this as the opportunity. It seems like a pattern is emerging in this conversation and we might as well uh, trace it while it's floating in the air before us. 
which is that um, I've been reading a lot of crazy futurists nonfiction lately. Uh, Kevin Kelly has a new book out, and Martine Rothblatt, who invented uh, Sirius XM satellite radio, has a book about um, digital immortality and, and uploading. And I've, I've been reading these books together, uh, which is a, a super trippy experience. And one of the things I keep thinking about is how both of these authors uh, assert that the more we play around in digital spaces, the more we're leaving a kind of a shadow or an image of ourselves in digital space that can be then used as a kind of mirror. Anthony, you and I were talking about before this call about like, you know, I give myself to Google and then Google sells it back to me. But it's, 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 like, it's like beyond that. The reason that they're able to make this effective sale is because this image of you is so precise. And so I was thinking about it and I was thinking about stuff that I'm never going to read. Like all of these videos I'm never going to get to. All of these file management, creative workflow, things that you guys are talking about are everyone's like unique attempt to manage the, the flood of ideas. And so in a way it's like, you know, that, that old joke about how, well, I need to clone myself. I need to make like three more of me if I'm going to pursue all of these projects. But there's this thing about it, which is that we may actually be getting really close to being able to spin off a version of yourself that isn't really quite you, but is like all of the songs that you never actually wrote and got back to, like all of the articles that you never read, and like you can you like create like an alternate reality version of you that has like a, an entirely different record catalog and, and like college education. I don't know. Well, that, to go from there, okay, so that just makes me think of what if all of these digital creation applications had something built into it where it was tracking all of our decisions, all of our equal, equalization decisions, compression decisions, composition decisions. I'm speaking just in musical terms. You could apply it to you know any type of visual media or anything else. And eventually, the program created a profile of you that was so predictive of what you might do that you know you said wow i i would have thought of that thanks for thinking of that and that's exactly like a multiple parallel computational versions of yourself my presets yeah <laughs> i love i love all my little presets these alternate versions of me but like it really is this is like a doug rushkoff present shock thing you know, so it's curious to me, Anthony, that you, you know, you talk about this album as being a bunch of stuff that you sort of dropped and then you got back to because the first one, the first Earth Cry album was very like conceptual and precise and like down to, you know, using solfeggio frequencies and like retuning your synthesizers. That time, that emphasis on time was about this micro scale but now you've emerged into this sort of larger set, set of feedback loops where you're going back years and reaching, reaching like back and forward through time and like different like Mac OS X time machine archives of yourself and like bringing stuff forward and backward. Somewhat of a task because you always have, I, that was like four laptops ago or something and <laughs> all the plugins that I had at the time were gone. Yeah, so like I, I've, I've never made sense of naming because by the time it becomes something close to release, I renamed it at least twice um, because I like I renamed it what I thought it was going to be the second time, and then by the time 
I see it like right now, I'm like, wait, that doesn't make any sense. And then you have to figure out which one was the session that you named that you wanted to use that had the plugins that you did have on the right computer. I think this is a funny name for this, the, the, the future of fossils. I feel like even back in the day I was doing that um, and I don't have the same necessary plugins that I had back back then because I just, I have uh, a terrible affliction known as gas, gear acquisition syndrome. <laughs> I consistently am acquiring new new software and then like not updating the laptop that I used before. And I have I have actual like fossilized artifacts known as old laptops that barely work that sometimes I have to try to like get them to work just long enough to get the set off of there or like, you know, flatten the wave files down so that I can like grab them and I'm really looking forward to being able to work on the next thing because I'm not going to do that to myself. You really think that it's not going to be upgrading constantly for the rest of our lives? Because that's really what it's starting to feel like for me. That it's it's gonna it's like we're moving out of the like liquid and into the gaseous phase, and then it's just like you know what? <clears throat> Forget it. I'm just going to automatically accept all the new permissions every day. You know, just. Well, going back really quick to like the protocol of, of you know pulling up old project files and such, this is something I run into pretty frequently, and, and Anthony, you were just talking about as well. I'm sure David and you, Michael, are, are pretty well experienced in this too. But like when you open something that that's not reverse compatible, like the project will not load in your new version of Ableton or Pro Tools or uh-huh. whatever, and you got to go through and like see if you can pull up your old version of uh, whatever that that DAW or software might be like the overall process maybe the project itself is two years old and kind of stale and what if there was like a algorithm that could actually go through and and rebuild and and sort of create a new version of whatever you uh were creating based upon what you had created and and there are like algorithms like that that are able to for instance like mimic uh beethoven or bach based upon their style like just digesting the algorithms uh and the processes through the waveforms of what's been created you know the compositions that people have made so maybe at some point we'll have something that can go through our old projects after we've disappeared and turned into fossils ourselves that can actually extrapolate out what our finished project might have been like, or for their own enjoyment, they'll be able to remix it based on that, you know? Huh. Well, that brings up an interesting thought for me, because you know, whenever I open up a, a project that's two or three years old, I, I instantly kind of get transported back to that moment, those moments in time that I was creating it, and I sort of insert my consciousness into my earlier self, Whatever was happening for me at that time, it sort of becomes this bridge through time. Not only when writing the track, but you know, if I play a track out live that I haven't played in a couple of years or something like that, I sort of re-embody the process that I was going through as I was writing that. So, Anthony, I'm, I'm curious, and uh, and Michael, I'm especially curious how this works for you because most of your songs seem to be these ongoing uh, sort of recapitulations of themselves as you play them live often. But Anthony, I'm curious how that was for you going back and, and pulling up old tracks uh, that were created by an earlier version of yourself. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's 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 definitely like I definitely probably wouldn't even write a lot of music the same way that I that I I did then. And yeah, it's Michael. Maybe we were talking about this. We were talking about how like 2012 was like the headiest year of everyone's life. You know, <laughs> like, at that point there was supposed to be some sort of like multicolor feathered winged serpent that was going to come down and like change everything that that same year so many things happened to us and i listened to music that i made then and it's a little more like cheesy mystical than i think i would create now those were the tracks that i'm talking about like that first one uh, trans-dimensional camel ride is definitely like that 
you know? And like now I have sank into as a person, just kind of more of a, I don't know it, it, how do you even put this man, more of a grounded or practical like mindset, uh, about things. Um, and I think it's come out in my music. Uh, I'm just trying to create sonic novelty, uh, that's, that's, that can add value to the electronic music community. And that's kind of like where I'm, where I'm operating out of. And I still have, you know, there's still my, like, I guess you could call it like petty, you know, mystical aspect, but it's not the dominant driving force. And so I think that might be like the biggest difference that I'm experiencing now, you know, between, between now and then. Um, and like to tie it all together, I wonder, <laughs> like David, you were saying how, uh, that there could be like a, a an algorithm that is that's collecting the different actions that we do. It'd be really interesting to like kind of have the same song and then run it through that system and see what 2012 Michael Garfield would create of his song versus 2016 Michael Garfield. You know what I mean? Like and what like what what the differences would be? And I I would I would venture to say that it would be a little more heady mystical if it was 2012. Oh, almost certainly. I mean, I believe uh, at, uh, what was it, 5.21 a.m. Mountain Time on December 21st, 2012, I was uh, engaged in a uh, sex magic ritual to bring about peace in the Middle East. So... <laughs> Michael, you failed us. <laughs> I'm sorry. Well, not really... necessarily. It depends on your timeline, your your sense of uh, you know yes, unfolding yes. events. Uh, hopefully, oh. uh, all all should be well in, in Michael's uh, sacrifice. Actually, on that note, I'm I'm going to send you guys a an image through the Skype chat here that we ought to put in, post in the show notes. Uh, I pulled this off of the Long Now Foundation website, and it shows this is this was an idea. Oh yeah, from Stuart Brandt and. And because we're talking about we're talking about this uh, about these different cycles that are all sort of like harmonics of other cycles, you know the 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 way that like Anthony's going back four years ago and digging up stuff and you know re repurposing it now and reinvigorating it with a new a new vibe is uh, structurally identical, um, although maybe not emotionally identical to. The way that I work in, in my shows where, you know, I'll, I'll layer a bunch of stuff and then drop it out and then maybe bring it back in five minutes in a different, a completely different context. And so this, this image from Long Now is of the various speeds of different natural cycles and where it's like the longest, slowest wavelength is nature, like ecosystems. And then culture is a little smaller and faster and then governance is a little faster still, and then infrastructure, and then commerce, and then the little you know twenty thousand hertz harmonic on top of on top of everything else is fashion. It's just a, like a little squiggly line running over that like long slow bass note of the earth. You know, I think that that's kind of what we're what we're seeing here. And Stuart Brand uh, in the book Clock of the Long Now talks about so much of our suffering as human beings comes from trying to ap apply leverage or influence on the wrong layer of that hoping that fashion is going to change culture somehow even though yeah. culture is like religion and how is fashion going to change religion it doesn't work that way you know 
Thoughts? I, I would argue that, that the fashion uh, uh, line on this particular graph, uh, and maybe we can link in the comments for the, the podcast, is one of many squiggly lines, uh, including perhaps commerce, uh, freakonomics, uh, infrastructure, the, the sort of build and bust cycle, governance, the perpetually non-compliant and uh, low performance phenomena, maybe a, a bouncing sine wave at the very bottom of the, the Y axis. Culture uh, looks pretty good as a solid line moving forward, I would like to think, and uh, you know, a bunch of spirals maybe referring back to prior moments and nostalgia and religion and spirituality. And nature is a continuous arrow as far as I can feel, but growing into a tree in multiple directions. So. That first line that they have for fashion is pretty good, but the rest are not just straight arrows as far as I can tell. Maybe if we can make a, a new version, that would, that could be really cool. You are the squirrel living in my tree of possibilities, Evan. <laughs> wow, I, I, that's the sweetest thing I've, I've heard all day, man. Thank you very much. And I've, had, I've had some great kisses from dogs and, and cats and uh, hugs from people and high fives, and uh, that was really nice. It, it definitely hit home, so thank you. <laughs> yeah. Well, one thing I know that I really want to get into on this chat, if I can continue to sort of steer this nonsense, um, is that, Anthony, you, in regards to your new album, uh, you said that working with modular synthesizers, like analog modular synthesizers on this round, you know, a real different workflow for you, and that it was sort of like working or collaborating, I forget exactly how you put it, but you said it was like working with a living creature. Yeah, yeah. Talk about that, the experience of that, specifically how that differed from the other stuff that you've done in the past. I'm curious. Well, I feel like in a lot of ways, like, okay, so you play the acoustic guitar, and you can you can pretty much express yourself instantly on an acoustic guitar because you have the skill that it takes to do what your brain does right away. Um, and I've always struggled with Specifically, using a laptop like directly, it should be just a duh thing for me. Like, should be just like I, I get this instrument that uh, requires physical effort. You know, I have to plug something into something else, route signal, think about how the signal is being routed, and, and and I have to think about the process. There's going to be uh, a novelty to it that you can only control so much. Um, you may be able to pluck something even with some harmonics because you let your thumb rest across the string properly. But the decay of that note, how long the harmonics are going to last, all these things are kind of like random variables and variants and, and, and possibilities that are so like interesting to explore. And what I've noticed is that, especially with the analog modules on the modular synthesizer, they tend you can plug them in exactly the same way and, 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 and try to get their settings pretty close, but uh, because of the nature of the components, because of the nature of electricity because of the temperature in the house reacts just a little bit differently um, and then something that's really common in the modular world is is the idea of using noise and then random uh, voltage to change and allow the system itself to generate uh, people make what's called generative patches right so you can do this also with software um, or a complex software will do this like a, a reactor and Native instruments, uh, and then like so, some of these other like really high-end synthesizers. But but my favorite thing to do with the modular is to create a generative patch where it's making the music itself. You just created kind of the way that the patch comes together, and you just once it's all put together, you just let it go, and and it will over time, especially if you're using things known as quantizers, which will limit the amount of notes available to the uh, to the VCO. Uh, down to kind of whatever scale you set, 
if you just put the variance in, like, I want it to be this fast and I want it to be in, in these notes, kind of like let it go and try different combinations of voltages going different places, you eventually create uh, a self-generating musician. It, it itself is making the music. And what I really enjoy is when the random that's being generated isn't a digital random, it's an analog random. Throughout time, analog random has really, really intrigued people um, with the, the random number generators uh, causing phenomena like, throughout, throughout time. And people like, you know, a large world event happens uh, such as like 9-11 or something. The random number generators tend to make numbers that are kind of alike. You know, it just makes me wonder. I don't really know for sure, but it just makes me wonder. Like when I'm, when I make a generative patch, is is what's happening in the world influencing this music that this device is making? You know, and like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah there I, we go. I've actually been <laughs> working on that recently uh, on Arduino for the first time over the summer because I have some extra hours to dedicate to learning a new like script uh, and encoding technique and. We're making this Arduino patch, uh, or sketch, you know, as it's called in, in the Arduino language, uh, to create a perpetually randomized sequence of arpeggios uh, based on a pentatonic scale that I've input, like, by frequency for each uh, data value. So it, it's not analog like you were just talking about, Anthony, but it is, you know, uh, in a way alive when I listen to it. Like, I, I can let it run for 10 minutes, and the cats like it, too, because it's, it's high frequency, so they get down to it. Um, <laughs> I.e. are not bothered by it. They seem relatively intrigued and will actually kind of like sniff it. But uh, I do feel like the randomization or the, the, the kind of generative aspect is really, really beautiful and uh, intriguing to me, especially. And uh, David, I'd like to hear your input on generative and, and arpeggios and uh, other aspects of manipulating sonic data, man. Sure. Well, uh, I worked for about two years at Moog uh, calibrating synthesizers. I worked on Mother 32s and Voyagers and Sub 37s. Um, and I had the very fortunate um, chance to learn synthesis on Voyager, which is an analog synth. And I, I think there really is something a little bit different about analog versus digital. And I think it has something to do with the fact that the signal path itself is a little bit closer to our biology than digital synthesis in that, you know, we have ACE, both AC and DC current systems in our body transferring information at essentially light speed, the resonance with an analog circuit that's operating in a similar kind of capacity, there's something that feels a little bit more alive, like you said, Anthony. And especially, I, I don't know how, how, if you've ever uh, tuned or calibrated any of those uh, modules that you have, but when you are working on, say, like keyboard scaling, where you're... Uh, programming the the oscillator to respond sequentially up a keyboard and scale it so that each note is actually uh, the distance that it's supposed to be in frequency, you get this almost living uh, entity type response where you tune one part of it and the other part moves out, the, the top end moves out and you keep just balancing these things back and forth, and it's like, uh, it feels very much like riding a skateboard or doing something where you're literally balancing with your body, and you can start to tune into these machines in, in ways that you really can't do with digital synthesis. Um, and I, I've thought so, so much about that very idea of, well, how much is my consciousness affecting this machine as I'm interacting with it? Mm -hmm. uh, and what's so interesting, too, is uh, actually going back to this... Um, graphic you sent of the from the long now uh what's coming back into fashion 
uh, right now is modular synthesis, but that's where synthesis began, pretty much. Uh, you know, looking at uh, Bob Moog's work in the, and John Buchla's work in the in the fifties and sixties, it was all modular, and then that went out of fashion, and the culture was very strongly influenced. And it's interesting how we see these resonant cycles and harmonics kind of uh, create this matrix of of time and relearning what was so beautiful about these machines with greater technological capability. Uh, because I think when they first came out, I don't think there was the uh, understanding that these machines are so special because we can resonate with them in a way that we can't with digital machines because digital machines didn't exist yet. So we kind of had to go through the cheese eighties DX seven bell sounds and uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, all, all that good stuff to kind of arrive back at the point where we can really see the, the, the what's so special about uh, these analog machines. So, dude, this is the thing. This is the thing that I actually, when I went to Moogfest uh, back in May to give their talk on techno shamanism, this and and I met your your buddy Amos Gaines, and mm-hmm. who works uh, at was a you know former coworker with you at Moog. Uh, this was the hub of the conversation, and the weird thing was that like the lynch, the the bow on the end of the weekend was that I missed this talk. Uh, by Google's Magenta project, they're they're a group of people that are working on exactly what we were talking about earlier in this call, which is you know artificial intelligences that can make paintings and musical compositions and that kind of thing. There's a guy on that project, Adam Florin, who I somehow didn't meet at Moogfest, who uh, designed a Max for Live patch called Patter, and Patter is a generative MIDI synthesis engine that's based on some of the uh, artificial intelligence that he's working on at Google. So I was like, I came home and I was like immediately, like I I actually had the weird sort of, after years of analog acoustic guitar modular synthesis with, you know, guitar and a bunch of pedals, I had this thing where I was like, okay, time to graduate to software because finally here's a system where I can not just interact or collaborate with the uh, vaporous electrical ghost in the machine, but I can actually give, I can like teach that ghost to speak a little bit, you know, and that these new, the the new software, there's this, this uh, sense in which there really is a, uh, a collaborator in there. And that, um, that one of the, one of the other projects, I think it was Georgia tech actually has a robotic, a marimba player that looks at the other members of the band and bobs up and down and keeps time with them and like you establish this this band member relationship with this thing that's essentially just a you know some script inside of a, a chassis you know it's like we think we're establishing a relationship with the robot but really we're establishing a relationship with this pattern of electrical current that's living sort of like it's moving through the robot you know it's not the it's not the the face of the thing it's the you know the thing itself is is the stuff that yeah it's like when when we start to think of ourselves as electrical systems and and anthony this is like in a way this is the cool thing about how this this album even though it's reaching back um in in a lot of ways but at the same time it seems like there's this 
well, the way forward is backwards in the sense of every renaissance reclaims what was repressed by the previous renaissance, you know? And so we're getting back to all of this sort of like pagan and shamanic stuff where we're, we're aware of ourselves as electrical, as like field-based entities. And that, you know, like, I'm sure everyone listening to this who's ever taken psychedelics around electronics is aware of how like shit just does not work the same way when when you're tripping and it's not that you're tripping it's not that you can't figure it out it's that your electrical field is different somehow and it's like your these electronics that we design are not designed to operate under those specs you know could it also be though that the that the projection of you is altered um, in those states and so because of that your projection of yourself ends up interacting with the other projection that you call an electronic device and that is just another way of kind of explaining the the phenomenon because I'm totally totally with you on that like cats for example when I'm uh, in that state uh, cats tend to become more electronic in, in nature and I, I when they, they, you know how they like their, their hair seems to Something strange about their hair specifically it seems to stick, stand on end a little bit more, and yeah. like it's almost as if I'm able to like statically interact with their hair, and their purring uh, takes on a quality of uh, almost a musical quality, and it's like, uh, but I, I know that the cat hasn't changed. You know what I mean? I just know that like the projection of myself interacting with the cat, and my projection of the cat, or what I, I know to be a cat, uh, I'm I'm ex- I'm experiencing a different quality of interaction with that. With, with with that creature uh, and and you could say the same thing you know definitely about musical instruments sometimes uh, it's it's like trying to play what did Jimi Hendrix say it's like trying to play a guitar with a snake you know like when you <laughs> snakes and you're just like uh, I don't know like uh, it it points to a pretty rock solid belief that I've developed over the years and that's that I think that there's a lot more to electricity in general um then I think we give credit. I, th- I think we say that electricity is part of the human body, like mitochondria are creating the, the, the ability for us to like move, but then these electrical currents coming from the brain, you know, operating the nervous system, yes, that's there. But I, I, I think that there's a, there, there must be an, uh, a spiritual component, a soul component to electricity, because it's almost like one of the, one of the most blaring differences between a, a cadaver and, and a live person is the presence of electricity and electrical current uh you know what i mean and so yeah uh, that's another way that you could say that messing with this device or you know david with uh with a synthesizer just i mean any, any device really is that the presence of that electricity is something that is kind of like a mirror to uh, a living and breathing person well i know that like uh michael and i have talked about this before but uh, are you guys familiar with uh, midi sprout data garden device that allows you to take subtle electrical signals from plants and transduce them into MIDI data. I've seen that, yeah. I haven't played with it. Uh, do, you have, do you have one of those? Uh, it's actually like out of a, a data garden in, in Brooklyn, and uh, I have been in touch with uh, Joe Petertucci, the uh, uh, head of uh, data garden, about maybe uh, doing something together on the horizon. But uh, it also uh, works with animals, too. So if your cats are sleeping, like you can put the electrodes on, on their like little leg muscles, and while they're like kicking in their dreams, you can actually record that information and transduce it into uh, MIDI for later on, whatever you want to do with it. So um, 
it would be really fun to take it to like a botanic garden, you know, and hook it up to a bunch of different plants with the permission of the people present and lots of opportunities I think open up with that. I, I, I just want to like let my houseplants sit like for weeks and, and dump all the data into a, a SD card and use that for something later on, you know. Dude, we can get to the bottom of this cat question too. We can, <laughs> can we? we? Can actually, Cats are very yeah, deep. We can, we can sonify their electrical data on, when we're in different states of consciousness and then listen to the pieces of music that come out and see if they're any different or like how they're different. And therefore, not only qu quantitatively, but qualitatively evaluate whether it's because we're tripping or just that we're just tripping. Man, you went a <laughs> nosedive into the rabbit hole. That, that was solid. Well, actually, I think what you would really need to do is sonify your own electrical data when you're interacting with a cat rather than it's... Well, I guess you could do both. <laughs> you know, you, you should probably do both and make sure that they're consistent, that there's a change in, in, in both, and repeat that about a hundred times. You're the psychoacoustics expert, David. <laughs> <laughs> actually, it's really interesting you bring up the plant thing. I was just reading a book... Uh, called Ancient Mysteries, Modern Visions, and it's about uh, a guy who's done a, well, it, it's his account of his research on the round towers of Ireland. I don't know if you're aware that there are all of these round towers scattered across Ireland that are uh, in a sky map uh, type distribution that where they mirror specific constellations. And he, and he was doing this work in the 70s, and he was looking at the uh, dielectric and paramagnetic properties of them, similar to how the pyramids are built and layered. And his theory on it was that they are uh, essentially resonators of cosmic radiation designed to enhance the ability for seeds to germinate, agriculture to prosper, and generally be supporters of vibrant life. And so he built all of these little models of these round towers in the exact same dimensions, but just, you know, did it in tiny little, scaled it down quite a bit, and found that, sure enough, the wavelengths correlated to where these uh, combinations of stone would collect these resonant waves. Uh, and this was in the 70s, so he was hooking it up to a device that would uh, trace out his, um, his voltmeter on paper. And he decided to use a fig tree to hook up to his voltmeter uh, that was reading a, an incredibly, incredibly small amount. It was like 0. .0000001 volt, really sensitive instrument. And he was trying to detect uh, solitons or waves moving faster than light. People call them scalar, scalar waves, kind of moving into that territory. And he found that this plant, that using a, a fig tree as an electromagnetic resonator hooked up to one of his round towers, he could detect the bursts of these cosmic uh, wavelengths from deep into the, the galaxy and using the fig tree as an antenna, essentially. <laughs> total, total, total mind blown. That's awesome. Round Towers of Ireland, I had no idea. Well, the, the fig tree thing reminded me of, of my desire to take this MIDI sprout, you know, scale it up maybe if we need to capture things more, more subtly or, or uh, on a larger scale and go out into the woods, you know, sample some, some redwoods, some, uh, some really large organisms at different points, like uh, map and route the electrodes at certain heights uh, along a uh, sequoia, for example, um, maybe out in the branches at different scales and see how it behaves at multiple locations and... Um, Evan, if you do that, I would be so interested in, in, in hearing that. 
<laughs> the word. Well, I think it would be really fun to just scale it with, with people that are able to do that for you. You know, I'd imagine that I wouldn't be qualified necessarily to go to the very top, but if I could, I would. Um, and uh, that, that's something I've thought about with respect to larger organisms, too. Like, if you could uh, set up these electrode systems to record the signals from, say, like a blue whale, which, uh, intriguingly enough, have been spotted, like, uh, in the waters here in New York City uh, recently, along with humpbacks and a few other species, which is a fairly rare event. So people have been able to actually go out, uh, even on the ferries here in the city, and s scope out some whale uh, activity, which um, I thought was a really beautiful counterpoint, especially in, like, the photos that have been posted of humpbacks breaching with the Jersey Shore in the background, you know? It's a... There's that, that Star Trek movie where the alien probe comes back to make contact with the humpback whales, and we're thankfully not to that point where we've made them extinct. And if, if the probe were to come, <laughs> theoretically, it would find them still here and be able to say hi. So we're doing all right uh, as far as the humpbacks go. But uh, I'll hand it over to, uh, to you, Michael, on your next uh, query, because I know you've got a lot of uh, <laughs> unique ang angles to take, you know. I'm still kind of blown by what, what David's saying here, this notion that's like, well, all this stuff that we're measuring... I was, I was actually just thinking about that earlier today, oddly enough, that we're aware that we're unaware of x-rays and microwaves and all this stuff, and yet we still have this weird, pretentious attitude that there aren't other invisible realities around those that we're not going to discover with more sensitive instruments any day now, or haven't already been discovered and just been sort of repressed by the scientific paradigm. Michael, do you want to talk about The Stranger Things? Is that what you're getting at on Netflix? Or what's your angle here? <laughs> yes. Yeah, we're about <laughs> to turn this conversation upside down. Ooh, into the upside down itself. No, but, but the full stuff is all based, that whole show is based on actual history in, in that weird kind of like X-Files fringe kind of way. Like that's... That's based on Ingo Swan's remote viewing experiments, that they, the protocols they developed with the CIA. So that stuff's all real. Anyway, David. Oh, I, I'm about to... I, I'm right there with you. It's actually, it's funny that this brings us back to where the conversation was a little bit ago, talking about the belief in uh, higher metaphysical concepts in 2012 versus the worldview now. Um, <laughs> I feel as though I've gone in the opposite direction as you, Anthony, where I was highly skeptical of all that stuff then. And through personal experiences since then, my view of reality has shifted to incorporate things that are far stranger than I uh, had anticipated. Um, but, uh, Michael, we were talking about Dan Winter earlier today, just for a second. I wanted to send you guys this link, and if you scroll down to about halfway through the page, there's a, there's a waterfall curve and a couple graphs of, of sine waves and he has um, a, a uh, magnetic coil at the base of a tree uh, as well as an EEG on a human uh, heart and forehead and the person was uh, attempting to you know meditate with the tree and you can see that the, the waves emitted uh, the frequencies emitted from the tree and the human are in phase with each other uh, it's pretty interesting. It just totally goes in line with what, uh, what we're talking about. Hmm. Well, there it is. Yep. We're gonna have to gonna have to link to that. This came up in the recent conversation I had on Third Eye Drops podcast with Eric Davis, which, for historical anchoring purposes, was released today, August second. I don't know uh, when when this will go out. Hopefully soon. But um, 
we were talking about some, some research that was just published a couple of months ago in which they took what they call circumcerebral magnetic fields. They put a, a helmet on with magnets arranged in a particular array. And Anthony, this has me thinking about what you were saying about the, the collective consciousness um, or the, the field of everyone in that uh, like Princeton Engineering Anomalies Research Lab kind of way, uh, weighing into the you know the sensitive mechanisms of the div of the synthesizer. Only it's like backwards because what they found was they were able to get gamers who were separated uh, playing different modules. They were able to put them on helmets that were oscillating the like identical magnetic fields by basically putting someone's brain inside this magnetic matrix that's identical between the two helmets that these people were playing through the game the same way like they were scoring points at the same time <laughs> <laughs> the same points at the same time like they were like they don't it's like they don't really they weren't trying to to my knowledge this is this was a co-authored by Michael Persinger, who is the guy who's done all the God helmet research on inducing spiritual experiences in individuals with magnetic fields. So I don't think that they were they don't have the technology yet to actually play somebody's brain like a video game in quite that way. It was the fact that they were like synchronized enough in their brain activity that they made the same decisions, mm. and that they were like. They were, they were suggesting actually that, I think the, if I read the paper right, it was like they were saying it may be evidence that because they were <clears throat> vibrating in synchrony that they became quantum entangled. To diverge really quickly to like a, a checking out at a restaurant or a grocery store or just like a, a big box store in general, like everybody tends to come up at the same time or that tends to be a phenomenon that is observed more frequently than, you know, a nice uh, a run to the, to the checkout and uh, easy one-step process or whatever. Like I, I've definitely noticed that people tend to converge simultaneously, even like working on the other side of the, uh, uh, the counter in the past, like when I was in high school working at a video shop and um, seeing everybody come up and, and uh, check out their DVDs at the same time. Um, after like 15 minutes of everybody just milling about, sometimes I wondered if it was like actually due to the music that we were, pl we were playing overhead, that maybe everybody converged uh, during the second hook or before the last chorus or maybe during the, the crescendo or uh, the key change or whatever. And uh, I feel like people do respond highly to, to music, whether they're consciously aware of it or not, and a lot of it's mathematical and does interlace and uh, correspond to certain brainwave functions and entrainment phenomena. Um, that have been uh, observed on, on multiple levels, and even frequencies themselves can correspond or kind of create an entrainment uh, on that frequency. That's where I feel like 432 hertz or 440 hertz uh, A, whatever your your tuned uh, frequency is, you can actually dance around in different ways, uh, even in your own way, making your own keys, as uh, Apex Twin is is known to do, uh, using analog gear especially. So. Taking that to the next angle, uh, you know, uh, Aphex released a Analord series uh, back in the day, all vinyl, all analog, uh, produced on hardware. And uh, Anthony, I wanted to ask if you if you listened to that or are familiar with Aphex and his influence on uh, analog uh, production. Certainly. In fact, I mean, he was able to accomplish a lot of the music from from that earlier time 
not only through like modular gear, but through even writing his own software uh, in order to like make make it all happen. And it's pretty interesting that uh, we find ourselves now in a situation where that digital aspect. Uh, I think a lot of that software he wrote was for digital control over the analog modules. And now, uh, you know, David was talking about how the modular has made a resurgence uh, in in fashion. I think is is potentially because now a lot of analog components are controlled by a a, a digital IC and or like Arduino or something. Um, and because that's happening, um, it's allowing a whole new world of control. Uh, there's there's modules now that are analog, but they they will self they will, they will configure themselves and then uh, calibrate themselves because they also within them have a a, a square wave VCO that's digital in nature that always plays the same note, so it can it's it's self calibrating. It, it makes me wonder. It makes me wonder what's next. Like you know, like we had analog circuitry, uh, and then we created digital circuitry, um, which is actually just it's analog components that make digital circuitry. We're talking about like you know the 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 next kind of big thing, and that's like quantum computing and stuff like that. And I wonder if that, I mean, of, of course there's going to be a whole musical. Uh, component to that when it when it you know really grips uh, the consumer like area when musicians have access to devices that that can compute at these speeds um, if we'll make it all the way back to Eurorack <laughs> or like you know five U like modular synthesis again you know a hundred years from now or something because the modules are now using that technology and it just makes me wonder if we're always going to find ourselves back here experimenting and exploring with with this uh device and this like this like living breathing thing because uh our technology has made our uh our explorations of it relevant again perhaps so i mean uh when it comes down to say uh artificial intelligence maybe in like a soft ai based on multiple layers of cascading algorithms that is generating its uh best guess as to what you might produce based on those inputs and this is really Going back to what you were talking about earlier, Anthony, about you know uh, quantizing information and then really uh, reducing it to a certain binary state or, or value, which is ultimately a derivative or a, you know a, a point uh, access or sample of a much more complex uh, wave pattern, which is indescribable in its, in its beauty and nature. And, you know, uh, no matter how many electrodes you put on a blue whale or a sequoia, you're never going to capture what it means to be a conscious uh, whale or sequoia. Um, try me, bro. Try yeah, me. well, maybe uh, we'll, we'll maybe we'll approximate the number of electrodes that will be required to to give our best guess on that phenomena. But but going back to like the the output of data um, that we might in the future have the opportunity to say, for example, um, uh, get beyond generative and go back to a soft AI or go forward to a soft AI based on our our own patterns and. Um, that the connection back to, to analog will always be refreshed based on the way that we can approach digital information and digital interface, which is, you know, going to also the Arduino, um, the next step for me personally is to install a, or put in a, a single button that will allow me to do a tap tempo, um, which I can also adjust via the, the software. Um, but if I do the tap tempo and then go to a, a MIDI output, I can take that same generative pattern that I played before on the piezo um, and actually output that into a analog synthesizer. And we have a few modes available in uh, Brooklyn that I might do that with in the near horizon. Puts with the uh, the sketch for Arduino and, and the code basically to generate that uh, output and 
see what happens. And I'm much more interested to hear that than I am on the, the piezo speaker built into the Arduino, which is pretty, you know, non-quirky and <laughs> not super interesting or frequency range. Uh, Sounds like it's 2012 in here. Well, he went, we, we're kind of going back. I think we all actually met around that time, to be perfectly honest. I think I met most of you in 2012 or 2011. Yeah, that seems about right. Um, I want to I take a total... Oh, wait, David, are you... Uh, yeah, I was just going to say, Evan, it sounds like what you're getting at is very much in the realm of uh, how many different modalities and or how many different ways of processing information can you connect together that might seem separate, digital, analog, biological systems. Um, how many ways can you connect them? How fluently can you connect them? You know, how can you expand on the limitations that each one has on their own? Uh, it sort of just it seems like that's the crux of where all this is going to some degree is sort of reaching back in time to when analog synthesizers did, had no digital capability, pulling it back into the present and then reaching into the future when we have these completely fluid mind-machine interfaces and linking all of these systems together in a way that really transcends the, the boundaries of what we are currently able to do you know i think that's 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 exciting to me yeah i mean i think it's a very pragmatic or humanistic angle you know in, in that um it's not so much necessarily about the uh variations or the combinations of a to d d to a etc processes but more about how do we connect the human element to all of our various means of creation, all of our tools available to share what it is that, that is meaningful to us and could be meaningful to other people and um, help you know those waking up in the morning who might be working a 12-hour shift like feel better about their day and get through it and, and be good, uh, self-loving, and, and help them on their journey. Whatever it is that they need, uh, music does assist. So you know whatever we can do, I think, is, is a positive aspect. And how do we connect the human element to it. I think it's often the question with respect to a lot of different variations and fields of uh, the arts. So, Thanks to this conversation, I think I want to... I'm, I'm kind of realizing that something's possible. I think I'm going to order one of these MIDI sprouts because, uh, you know, when it comes to these different systems, there's a lot of uh, translation devices available now. And so the MIDI sprout is, is changing, uh, you know, signal coming from a plant to MIDI and there exists a, a MIDI to CV device that I have, um, which is how yeah. I, which is how I uh, you know do a lot of composition on the the modular when it comes to keeping the notes volts per octaves, for example. And then that's the other thing. There's control voltage can then be quantized to a volt per octave scale, uh, and then that scale can be played in a generative patch. I I, I just I, I'm so interested in this now that I want to create a generative patch using my uh, uh, cactuses or something. I just, I just want to see what you know, and then and then I want to see if there's like different music, and maybe I should make an album of different plant jams. You want to do that together? I'm totally down. <laughs> oh my so, god, this is getting very nerdy. This is amazing. Thank you so guys. Are you are you guys? You guys have first of all, you know, noting that there's you know some recent research that shows that there are certain species of plant that actually do use uh, acoustic vibration to communicate with one another. Um, I've heard about this and their yeah. yeah, and so the, the question for me would be, like, okay, we've managed to sonify this stuff coming out of the plant. 
through this, you know, awesome like Rube Goldberg Frankenstein's laboratory setup, and then what happens when we turn it, or like how can we tune the musical output of that system in such a way that it actually uh, communicates something meaningful back to the plant? Yes. You know, like because I, you know, I'm I'm super interested in. Uh, there's a fantastic TED talk from a few years ago on the interspecies internet. I don't know if any of you guys saw that, um, but Peter Gabriel was one of the people uh, involved in in that situation, and, and Vince Cerf, who is one of the architects of the internet. And you know, they're talking about creating computer interfaces so that dolphins and bonobos and other other uh, conscious creatures can participate in the internet can participate in the society that emerges online and you know you get into like dolphin votes and stuff you know that i'm i am all for that you know give the earth a real voice like you know that's where we get back to this like oh you gonna call yourself earth cry anthony you know let's uh you know like i think album three you might actually like really like rise to a new conscious layer of that uh expression if the whole thing is to actually, um, like, what what uh, futurist George Dvorsky talks about is animal uplift. Like, if we're getting smarter, don't we have an ethical responsibility to uh, pass that stuff down to the other creatures in our world? You know, and it's it's a complicated conversation, but at least I think everybody agrees that the the planet should have a voice in our political proceedings. And so maybe the way to do that is is through music, is through getting people used to the idea uh, first as a, an, an aesthetic or an artistic ideal. Well, what's interesting is that there are now modules that uh, you can connect to servos and control the servo via CV, uh, control voltage. And so you could essentially create a, a full circuit that this little, maybe maybe you put a little duster on the end of the servo arm or something and it just wiggles the plant a little bit very lightly uh so you could have the plant go i guess it would go like this it would go electromagnetic voltage to midi to to cd through the entire like modular system quantized and creating kind of like human scaled notes and then have a, a the one of the random noise generators that's that's kind of getting uh, all kinds of aspects of it like it's Basic uh, analog noise, if you didn't know, has a speed um, of generation. And so if you change the speed of generation, you get like uh, higher pitched or lower pitched sounds and kind of uh, almost sounds like bit reduction in a way. You could feed that to the servo, which could just wiggle and wiggle the little dusting arm and like mess with the whatever whatever part of the plant. And it could like, you know, it could create a full like system. Because I, I do know that there are some plants that react to touch more than others. And uh, that'd, be, that'd be interesting to see if there's a difference happening and whether there's like a, a more or less notes being generated when the, the plant itself is getting wiggled. Because I'm noticing people on this website, this, the Midi Sprout website, the, the guy, the way that he's like doing a performance is he's grabbing a, a leaf of this snake plant and pulling it and pushing it, and that's changing Midi notes. So I wonder if mm-hmm. that's, that's pretty interesting. You could make the plant like edit itself or something. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so... Sorry, but that's no. It's good. This is like we're in it. We're in the we're in the the thick of it. Where it's like really uh, we're really starting to. If you're listening to this like more than 20 years in the future, I'd be interested if you could like somehow ping us back and let us know 
just how close we are to the way that all of you guys are now thinking all the time about this sort of like I really in a, in a sense I really do think that one of the things that we're retrieving as we move deeper into a you know densely networked uh, artificial environment is that sort of jungle type consciousness that jungle type spirituality in which we live in this like uh, you know what Carl Sagan called a demon haunted world I think we can call you know like an inspirited uh, cosmos or you know it, it, you know we recognize that we're just on the other side of the envelope from this major mystery and and one of the things that's characteristic of that that uh, sort of pre-modern uh, jungle kind of perspective is that you know sense of everything being connected to everything else so as as our technological environments uh, diversify and accelerate to the point where it really is like um, we were joking about drone music before we get, we started recording and like uh, Evan I thought you were talking about that video of those all those little quadcopters that the guys at MIT or wherever they programmed them all to play the James Bond theme you know and it's yeah. just like this notion that we're going to be constantly surrounded by all of these tiny little like these little robots are all carrying servers that are all running a mesh network and that there's no central router. You know, it's all like little mini server router bots everywhere. And we're living in this sort of jungle of, of robots that we can reprogram and link to each other. Like uh, Rainbow's End by, by science fiction author Werner Vinge talks about this in terms of moving computers into our clothing. So every outfit you wear has a slightly different computational suite of abilities he calls it ensemble computing you know so like maybe today you know you're going to wear a different shirt because you're going to be using different apps you know and it's got different sets of sensors on it and so it it, it, it weaves its way back into the fashion and it becomes this thing that we're just constantly you know looking at our environments in terms of well how can we like rejigger this a little bit how can we reprogram it and like move some things around and you know, coax a different tune out of this room. I, I just can't stop thinking about how all of the things that we're talking about in terms of uh, interacting with our environment on a deeper and more subtle level uh, and tuning into plants and like, reestablishing a vitalistic view of the world around us really does uh, tie into all of these traditional indigenous ways of understanding the earth and interacting with it and it's almost as if we've uh kind of had to take uh, at least in our current modern society had to figure out how to get back to that place through our own technological ability and through our own micromanagement of the environment and uh sort of uh the the desire to break things down to the smallest component in order to see the big picture rather than coming at it from the big picture in the first place um mm. but i think it's necessary at this point because we're at we're we're very much at where we're at so the only choice is to use the technology that we're creating and continuing to to evolve with to deepen our connection to our environment if that's what you choose to do and i find that to be a valuable and worthwhile pursuit 
with all of these technological gadgets because otherwise I don't, I don't know what the point is. Yeah. <laughs> my, my favorite class to teach uh, at uh, the spot in uh, Greenpoint called uh, the Brooklyn Home of Music, or Be Home for short, is the field recording class where we all go out and we uh, knock on fences and drop things down, little pipes, and <laughs> explore the East River shore on the uh, Queens side and the Brooklyn side and um, get out and even like talk to kids to see if they'll like throw their skateboard one more time in the wrong direction to uh-huh. make it like scatter in the in the way that makes it uh, interesting recording and like uh, people are curious about it typically it's kind of like it's a field recording or a musical sonic approach to the Pokemon Go phenomena where it's it's interactive with your environment and you're more curious I've, I found about like the sonic uh possibilities in the uh, objects and the environment and the people and the uh, animals around you. If you take binoculars out in the woods and you're looking to go uh, bird watching, chances are you're going to pay more attention if you have the binoculars on you and you're ready to go and you need time to like zoom in and, and find something that you're interested in. Uh, a field recorder is much the same to me personally, so that's one element of interaction and, and the same goes with something like a mini sprout where you're actually kind of uh, connecting to your environment you're learning about the information and the musicality and the conversation, the interchange of energy going on all around you. And um, something Michael and I have talked about is is looking at the electric universe type uh, theory of uh, you know the unfolding of the cosmos. Uh, and uh, I don't know if you guys are that familiar with with that concept. Uh, mm-hmm. Probably, <laughs> I would guess. Uh, maybe They're we talked about this before. They're wizards. Yeah. Well. <laughs> So I'm, I'm more than interested your input on this Wizard 101 topic of the electric uh, cosmos. I watched a... Uh, oh, what was the doc? Have you, have you seen Thunderbolts of the Gods? Yeah, yeah. yeah Michael sent it to me, I actually. Really, I really enjoyed that because it kind of pointed to a potential electromagnetic nature of all things, including consciousness. Um, and, you know, I bought it, like, so fast because it just felt so... <laughs> I don't remember the name of the scientist, but he's like the laughing stock of everybody, and like, it's probably who know, who knows what what the deal is with it. But like, I bought it because it felt so at home to to me, because interacting with electricity is just such a it seems so natural. And I think what potentially might seem unnatural about interacting with electricity and life is just the interface. You know, uh, I was talking with Liam the other day, David, about how I wish that you could produce music by on a laptop by doing, like, something aerobic, you know? Or, like, if you're going to do a big, like, bass drop, you'd have to, like, wind some huge, like, you know, <laughs> like, heavy, like, armor or something like that, and you could, like, do it that way. Could try uh, Jack in the Box? Yeah, exactly, yeah. Or, like, you know, when you're going to, like, blow something up dynamite-wise? Like, if you want to do, like, a big, like, transitional sound you have to literally like stand up over the dynamite explosion box and like push it down like i wish that that was in some ways in some ways i find myself sitting there for hours being like, man i wish there was a more aerobic something required physical effort in order to like create these sounds i think that musicians by and large would be healthier i i and but what that all points to is that like i think that people look at a computer and they say i'm typing and looking at this lcd screen and they say this is unnatural or they look at it and say this is like this technology is, is it's destroying the earth, but I think it's the interface that needs the update more than pretty much anything else. It's the way that we interact with electricity and our technology that 
can benefit us. Um, and you know, you've been doing a lot of work, David, in that you know in that field uh, recently. Um, and and I, I'm sure these guys would be really interested to hear like what, what, what you're presently working on. Yeah. Well, um, man, I could talk for uh, electromagnetism for a really long time. I don't think I don't think we want to go down that rabbit hole completely. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I've been doing some work outside of few texture and I actually left Moog to take up this position as the director of applied psychoacoustics at a place called the Apiron Center for Human Potential, uh, which is a next generation uh, wellness and human optimization clinic, essentially, uh, kind of taking a multimodality approach with some pretty forward thinking um, uh ways of looking at the human body we do personalized precision genetics and nutrigenomics and uh they're very interested at looking at how sound and light can positively affect the the human organism so that's kind of where i come in and um we have a three-dimensional speaker array and an anechoic chamber that you can be suspended in the middle of that I'm designing some programs for, doing a lot of work with. Uh, wait, wait, wait. Tell, tell people about the anechoic chamber because this is totally key. I think this is like the yes. This is the crown chakra of the conversation, if you will. <laughs> uh, well, it's uh, it's a cylindrical room that's about ten feet by fifteen feet, and there is a eight speaker uh, array that's arranged in a star tetrahedron that you can be suspended in the middle of in a sling type chair so that your head is perfectly in this space coherent bubble because all the speakers are equidistant from each other. And um, we're looking at things like brainwave entrainment, uh, specific frequencies to balance the nervous system, and really just kind of exploring what the actual physiological effects are on people um, and how we can harness that for better health and functioning and I've basically just been given the keys to pilot this incredible ship uh, and we have access and I have access to EEGs and all kinds of uh, biomarker um, data while we do this stuff so I was thinking we should totally hook people up uh, Anthony while we're recording uh, data from plants and do some stuff similar to what Dan Winter was doing, looking at human physiological oh. data and plant physiological data at the same time. And how they um, how they interact, how they communicate, even you know mm -hmm. how that data might change depending on where the the human body interacts, you know, and uh, in what way with the plant. Oh my god! Mm -hmm. Oh my god! You guys, I have some uh, plans that I need to cancel and come uh, <laughs> <laughs> to North Carolina and uh, participate in some some uh, possibly world shifting shenanigans. Calm down. <laughs> That's a question, David. Does any of the, I, I'm not sure if you're calling it biofeedback, but, but what this MIDI sprout does is it reads the galvanic skin response, the GSR of a plant, and that's how it, that's the data that it takes into the MIDI translator. Is, is that something that you guys are taking in, in, in those? Yeah, yeah, we have we have uh, uh, we have that capability, and actually, I wonder if we could hook up our human galvanic response sensors to that as well, and what the yeah, it says on the website. Are. I've been reading it while we've been going around here, and it says, uh, yeah, when applied to a human, this is called a gal galvanic skin response. GSR readings provide insight into humans' inner emotional states and are the basis of the simple lie detector test. But they just 
all they did is they created a, a device that uh, just translates it to MIDI. Interesting. It's almost like the uh, the void comp uh, test in Blade Runner, or uh, do Android's dream of electric sheep, taking in uh, multiple response uh, uh, variables from the physical body and uh, artificial intelligence test in the case of Blade Runner for these uh, replicants. You know, like maybe at some point we could even apply that to a uh, sufficiently complex uh, hard AI bot uh, trying to infiltrate a system. You know, see if it can sing a tune the same way as as we might. Hmm. Dude, I just, you know, thinking on that, uh, it's just so obvious as someone who lives, you know, 30 plus years ahead of that that story's original conception, that if you're going to take all that rich multi-input data off of, you know, your interviewee, you know, like right now, all I'm getting is y'all's audio. And that's great because that's all we're sharing. But like if, if I was able to get your galvanic skin response and pupil dilation and, all, and you know, infrared map of your blood flow and all that stuff and all i'm doing with it is telling whether or not you're an android that's an that is a that's like a cultural or like that's a society level tragedy phil dick would be pleased to know that in 30 plus years that we're at a point now where we're actually saying well if we can do all that why would we kill the android why wouldn't we just sell them a bunch of stuff <laughs> like it's better to have them involved in the economy. This is the principle of public schooling. You know, it's like it's it's best. Is, this, is that the next pyramid scam where instead it's, of printing more money, we print more androids to sell to sell more things to make more money? Print more Actually, people yes, in this case. Yeah. Yes, Robin Hanson wrote a whole book about this. The age of oh my God. He wrote a whole book about about how as soon as we it well it sort of worked that way. It's like as soon as we learn to it can scan the brain and reproduce its activity in a computer. Uh, even before we understand it, then we can start massively reproducing, you know, the best accountant in the world, the best elementary school teacher in the world. And then like most of the economy ends up being digital people. And so they all end up uh, in this like extraordinary fight uh, for subsistence wages while the human beings living at normal human speeds become unimaginably wealthy. For like two, for like for like however long it takes for that whole system to like go up in flames and like eat the entire planet or whatever happens, you know, it's like yeah. But that notion of like, well, the most important thing is that we uh, we exploit our you know godlike creations as deeply as possible. That's the economic logic of it for sure. <laughs> oh, that's funny. But that actually uh, brings up. The, the point of like what do you start doing when you what what do you do with that data you know what what are the the most positive outcomes you could think of to to use from someone's you know real time biologic data and I, I've been working on on some kind of like relational coherence type programs where you get multiple people hooked up to uh, heart rate variability sensors and start to look at how long it takes people to entrain together uh, and how you can uh, facilitate that entrainment because like I, I can't see you guys as you mentioned I, I'm just hearing your voice and I wonder just through that interaction how much our physiological you know, mechanisms have synced up and what would be the technological 
implementation that would allow us to actually feel as though we were having a much more intimate conversation based on our body's ability to respond to each other in real time. I remember reading that that, that people have been really been trying to work on that since uh, Skype, or since early, you know, internet video communication was, was happening. And well, the early attempts were, were pretty uh, ill-designed and, and chunky. But I think that we're actually going to see some, some really interesting stuff come online in the next couple of years uh, to make these type of conversations feel as though we're really sitting there with each other. I hope so. Because I miss you guys. <laughs> yeah, I miss you guys too. Uh, maybe you could put a, like an underlying uh, field recording of a, of a campfire in the background, have a crackling, and each of us can you know microwave a marshmallow. See what happens with that. I, I was uh, going to say that would be very successful, actually. Word. Well, another thing that comes to mind is uh, I don't know if you guys did this back in the day or like we're we're in choir in high school or uh, maybe barbershop quartet, especially because we're we're four of us right now on the podcast and. Uh, Thinking about the barbershop that I sung in in my junior and senior year of high school, uh, that element where everybody harmonizing simultaneously in, in a chord that is perfect but imperfect and, and beautiful and, and resonant and uh, physical as well with your fellow like friends that you like to hang out with is a really special feeling. And, and music, live music especially, where everybody's uh, jamming and uh, like Anthony with with Papadocio, because uh, I've seen a lot of your performances and. Uh, been grateful to share a stage here and there, uh, watching you guys from backstage and seeing how things were unfolding and, and watching magic happen, uh, where that element of communication, music itself, is maybe what at some point we might verify with our ventures into artificial intelligence and interaction with human consciousness and uh, biology. Thank you for that. You know, we should try, since we're coming from four different directions, we should try to sing a seventh chord over the internet. I wonder if that's ever happened before. I was... Yeah, let's um, minor seventh or major seventh. Uh, I mean, well, I guess let's just let the third. Let's 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 go. Uh, Michael, play the sing the first note. Sing. The, uh, uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, well, one of the things that uh, again, in like Werner Vinge's Rainbow's End, that novel, he talks about. That he actually has a scene in which people uh, coordinate a real-time symphonic collaboration across the planet, and like we've seen a couple things sort of like this, like the YouTube Symphony Orchestra. You know, that's like this massive centrally coordinated thing, and the idea being that eventually this is going to be just sort of how people ordinarily do it, except that you're going to have one or several of the participants in that situation sort of rather than having a conductor you'll have somebody who is uh kind of like switchboard operating like shuffling people's data traffic through different avenues through different like uh, proxies and routes so that everyone's latency lines up and it's like this this notion that um that consciousness is the latency space where all of the different sensory latencies you know like it your eyes, it's quicker to get data from your eyes to your brain than it is to get data from the, the tips of your toes to your brain. And yet this, you have to experience all of this stuff is happening at the same time. And so in a way, we're just reproducing that, that uh, what, what I guess like uh, in op ophthalmology or, or uh, like 
with the study of the eye and the brain, it's um, this notion of the flicker fusion frequency. So like your vision only updates every, you know, one one twenty-fifth of a second, which is why movies work, you know, because it, it's moving faster than we are aware of it. It's like, well, the eye can move faster than that, but the problem is that the body is of a particular size and that if the eye were moving faster than that, that we'd be out of rhythm with ourselves. Like we would be experiencing visual information as occurring more rapidly than touch or something. And so it seems like we're, we're kind of getting into some, some terrain like that with each other as we beca become more networked. We're sort of building uh, like little, almost like ne little neural networks between us, you know, and forming, forming little synchronized symphony groups and but but we're not up to the uh, the, the major sevenths yet. <laughs> it might take some <laughs> practice. It might take some practice, but uh, uh, if, uh, if you all are down, maybe it's time to do some uh, some last minute wrap up and plugs, etc. cetera. Uh, we've been chatting for about an hour and a half, which I'd like to keep the entirety of, if possible, to have a nice long podcast for uh, for all of us to uh, share these uh, conversational labyrinthine uh, um, logical inputs and outputs with uh, everybody else who wants to chime in as well and again we welcome a lot of uh, everybody's comments and uh, input but this is uh, Future Fossils and again we have uh, on the show uh, David Krantz, uh, Futexture and uh, Anthony uh, from Papadocio, uh, also goes by Earthcry and just put out a, a new release. That's awesome. So why, why Sun Pass as, as a title? Oh, oh, uh, well I guess like uh, I kind of like liken the ideas I think that you feel the most excited about you give the most energy to um, and when you give something excitement I've noticed in my life at least that I accomplish things when I'm excited about something and if I'm not excited about something it does not happen like if so so I likened it to the songs that were available you know maybe I think there was like I think I, I'm, I'm not exaggerating I think there were probably like 70 different like Blahs that I like thought would be cool ideas and maybe still will end up, you know, becoming whatever at some point. But um, the ones that I was most excited about were the ones that I finished, and so I gave those the most energy. And the sun, you know, if you know what a sun path graph is, is you can put it on like a on a, on a laminate clear thing and you can hold it up to the sky at the right distance and you can see where the sun will be depending upon the season. Um, and so I thought of. I, I thought I, I was trying to like make a, a name that sounded cool, but still I like, kind of referred to what I was thinking of. Is that you you want to position your like like your windows and your your awnings and stuff like that in the right way, so that you you get the right amount of energy from the sun at the right amount of times to heat and cool your house. Uh, you know, used for solar systems and and and, uh, and things like that. So I thought you know uh, in in some ways I'm kind of like I'm like the sun kind of looking at all my different ideas uh, that are right there and I'm like moving across the specific thing and I'm like oh okay so this idea is cool that idea is cool that idea is cool that one's cool so I've given those ideas the most energy and so like I, I thought like the album itself is kind of like my own like personal little like like sun path you know uh, and I had granted energy to those songs enough to the point where I felt like they were finished enough to you know to send them off to mastering and then like put them in an album so uh, I don't know if that makes any sense, and maybe it doesn't. Maybe I didn't think it all the way through. But, yeah. <laughs> well, it, it, it does to me. If it, if it doesn't make sense, that's a problem because it makes sense to me. 
Well, I think like if anybody's interested in like passive solar uh, uh, for their homes, especially one one interesting aspect, especially with respect to trees, is uh, if you have a deciduous tree in the summertime, it helps to if it's planted to the south of your your home, provided you're in the uh, northern hemisphere, protect and actually shield from excess energy from the sun, therefore keeping the home cooler over the summer when it's uh, foliated or has uh, leaves on it. And then during the winter, once it uh, sheds its leaves, again, assuming it's a deciduous tree versus a, a coniferous, so like an oak versus a, a white pine, that the oak will, will, will shed its leaves and therefore allow more direct sun during the winter when you actually need to heat yourself in, in your home a, a bit more or a lot more. So uh, Sun Pass for me is, is deeply connected to like doing a solar side assessment of somebody's uh, property or their house and seeing how they might uh, be able to put up an array of solar thermal or photovoltaic and uh, uh, David you used to have a, a solar thermal array on, on your rooftop and are you guys still at that same spot? No we're actually we're actually at a new house um, but yeah that, that house was designed really well with passive solar and the tree scenario that you're describing was uh, very much implemented there it is true what he says Cool, well uh, anything else you want to plug before we kind of wrap up here for tonight? Give us your websites, folks. And if you're thinking about this as like a time capsule to the future, and you know people or possibly extraterrestrial beings that like find this in the ruins of a city, Ooh. are listening. You know, a thousand years from now or however long. Ten thousand. Uh, One hundred million. Yeah. yeah. What? But not that they care what we consciously wish to tell them. They're more interested in our trash, probably. But what would you say? To that, those distant future beings, and then also, what's your website? Oh man, that's a that's a tall order there. <laughs> and a good I one. The website one pretty easily. That's EarthCry.net. But what I would say to distant future beings is, uh, hey, we tried really hard. Uh, <laughs> help. <laughs> if you can, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, send help. Send help. I think uh, <laughs> that, that sounds good. Send Rick. <laughs> Morty's waiting. <laughs> we are all Morty. Our, our, our culture is Morty. We're all <laughs> <laughs> you can listen to my music at uh, SoundCloud.com/slash/Futexture. F-U-T-E-X-T-U-R-E, and you can check out Apiron Center at Apiron A-P-E-I-R-O-N Center dot com, and check out some of the offerings that we do. Um, so yeah, hey, and thank you guys for having me on this show. This has been fantastic. Yeah, really, really enjoyed it. We're not uh, in the uh, the habit of like collecting every Pokemon guest celebrity. You know, oh, I got Graham Hancock. Blah, blah, blah. He evolved to Dennis McKenna. No, it doesn't work like that. So. Plus thirty ancient <laughs> civilization points. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Minus five TED Talk points. Oh. Translate uh, uh, plant and and skin signals to music, and we'll, we'll we'll get back to you then. Yeah, maybe actually, you know, I'm gonna be out on the East Coast this fall, this November. I don't know if you, uh, you know, maybe that's the the trip to um, come visit you, David, and, and we can yeah. have another one of these in person. Absolutely, you, you you've got a place to stay. Right. Yeah. Yes. Well, I'll let you know if the MIDI Sprout is shipping by then. It seems like they're backed up on orders right now. Yeah, there's been a really high demand for that, and they're actually working on the uh, the kind of Mark II uh, path, and I'm uh, thinking about uh, approaching them with a different project as well. But, uh, Michael, I know you're going to be uh, on that East Coast uh, tour 
coming up here to New York and, and going to uh, Cosm, Alice Gray's uh, Chapel of Sacred Mirrors. So that's November November twelfth is the mm-hmm. Cosm date. Yep, yep. And we're gonna maybe I should try and put something together in Asheville while I'm thinking about it. Do it up. Yeah. With um, yeah, yeah. with anybody. Well, okay, guys. Well, this has been a super awesome. I think that was episode ten, which makes this the the end of our first batch. Not that uh, that prevents future human beings that are actually like uh, MIDI-operated DNA robots <laughs> living, you know, projecting out of the cloud uh, from binge-watching all of this. I don't, I don't think seasons will be too important at that point. I think once once the binge-watching uh, uh, kind of unfolds in 100, 1,000, 10,000 years, etc., uh, the seasonality of a, of a program will not be as important in the binge-watching process, so... Um, who knows? Don't matter in space. Yeah, but if anybody grabs this as a zip or, or finds it as a uh, a single archive season one uh, with a uh, end marker, a nice capstone here at uh, episode ten, if we want to drop it at this point, which is maybe a good uh, way to go. Um, thank you guys again, uh, Anthony and David and uh, Michael. Good to talk to you as always. Uh, this is Evan Skytree signing out for tonight. Survivor of the Starship Nostromo. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully not. I mean, we're we're getting a remake of uh, you know, or or sort of a redirection of uh, Alien Three coming up from Neil Bloomkamp and maybe uh, Scott himself. So I guess we'll see. Hey, I, before before I hang up here, I wanted to uh, really juiced on this website called FutureTimeline.net, mm. um, and I don't know if you guys have ever visited that place, but it's uh, it's a uh, it, it's pretty rad. Yeah, yeah, that one. Um, sounds like you already have, Michael. I, I think I, I've seen I, it. Let me see what I. We'll link it in the show notes. You know, we'll put mm-hmm. a URL for people. It ties more into the broad perspective of of this being kind of like uh, talking about uh, time, and it actually even touched on some of the stuff you guys are talking about with uh, uh, you know how automation is slated to kind of take over our government. Um, our governments and our uh, maybe even every every other aspect of our flowchart here, like um, in, you know, far off in the future, that in some ways will kind of like save us from ourselves. Um, this is pretty, interesting, yeah. Pretty interesting stuff. I mean, like, and, and a lot of the, the information here is derived from uh, all kinds of really cool resources, and they have them all like logged here. So it's not just a bunch of you know people just wanking off on a bunch of ideas. It's an actual like uh, it's pretty cool. It's pretty, it's pretty interesting. It's, it's based off off of a forum. So if you ever have something to, to contribute, I think you could probably get a lot of listeners for your podcast um, on this forum because this is what these people are like interested in. Oh yeah, so, Anthony, I uh, I appreciate you mentioning the uh, the Global Consciousness Project, the Friend of Number Generators. Yeah. Um, that that particular thing uh, I found I I think I was in like eleventh grade in high school, and I found that uh, that website and just completely like blew my mind and opened my world up like that was the thing where I was like oh my god what what <laughs> yeah so that has a special place in my heart nice this all sounds like fairly accurate even if it's not like totally on board with the timeline I feel like like the specific dates I feel like everybody uh, everybody kind of knows what's coming <laughs> at this point I mean that's that's the weird thing about it is that uh I mean, I, I know I gotta go, and you gotta go, but like, just think about 2012 and now. 
And it's like, I think the difference is that, like, it felt super mystical to talk about this shit in 2012. Now it doesn't. Now it just feels, like, mundane. Like, we're like, oh, yeah, you know, and then, like, when we're all, you know, when we're all, like, uh, on a ketamine prescription riding around in driverless cars, you know, like, forming, forming, like, uh... What kind of dystopian world do you live in, man? I, I don't know what you're talking about, man, but at any rate... <laughs> yeah, <know>. likewise. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, and that's the thing is like, if it's really going to be totally different, it's going to, it's going to offend our sensibilities. But anyway, I love you guys. This was super fun. You know, we, we do these pretty irregularly, but if you're ever feeling like you've got some, some new thing that you want to rap about, or you just want to join the conversation we're we're down to have you back as, as guests, uh, when we're interviewing someone else, I think we ought to start just getting in the habit of that. Have a great night. Good night. whenever that means.